We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And uh, I'm going to, to read this passage in its entirety, Jonah chapter 1, and then I'll pray for Hayden and he'll come up and, and preach God's word to us. So let's, let's read these words together. These are the words of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. So he uh, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship thre uh, threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a, give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse seven, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know uh, on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and what, wh where did you come from? What is your country and what people, of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased to you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for another Lord's Day, for us to gather with your people, for us to sing your praises, for us to confess sin, for us to be encouraged by one another, and for us to corporately submit ourselves under your preached word. We thank you for this great privilege that it is to sit at your feet and hear from you. So I pray that you give all of us here hearts that are eager to hear from you. I pray, Lord, would you fill Hayden, your servant, up with your spirit. I pray that you would calm his nerves and give him confidence to preach with zeal. 
I pray that he would proclaim your word to us with authority, not authority that is his, but authority that comes from your word. Lord, we are eager to hear from you this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Good morning, Emmaus. Good morning. Um, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you're looking for it in your Bible, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So we're going to be in chapter 1 all day today. And uh, we're going to start with this first chapter, and it's kind of going to expose us to the whole book, really. It's a short book. It's a unique book, and uh, you should know that there's only four chapters, and you could probably wake up in the morning, sit down, uh, start reading it, and finish it by the time the water gets done boiling. It's, uh, and I would recommend doing so this week. Um, it's a straightforward book, too. There's not a lot of characters, and it's a narrative all the way through. Um, and I'm sure we've all heard the story, Jonah and the fish. It's a fish, by the way. It's not a whale. It says fish. Our culture has kind of assumed, well, that's fine, I guess, but uh, that's what it is. Um, and, uh, and you've probably grown up um, hearing the story. If you were like me and not so much a Christian home, um, I essentially put it in the category of one of those stories that you heard growing up, um, kind of an extravagant story that happened in the Bible, probably not true, uh, but at least it had a good message, and uh, you, you, you might still have that posture uh, if you're here with us today. And I, I don't want to say too much about this, um, and I suppose the only point that I will make about this is that Jonah was indeed a real person. Uh, he was from a very real place at a very real time, saying very real, real things. Um, Jesus spoke as if that was the case, um, and, and we, we see other places in Scripture as well, but I... Just remember here that when we talk about um, scenarios like this uh, in Jonah chapter 1, um, what we're claiming as Christians um, is that the Bible claims to worship a God who created everything out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. He, he made order to the world. He invented the laws of nature. They didn't invent him. And he is the author of creation. And so if he gets to hurl a wind in this story, or if he gets to uh, put someone, um, uh, lead a fish to swallow Jonah, he gets to do it. He's the author of creation. Um, so if, if you're wondering what it means that, that the, the Lord sent a fish to swallow Jonah, it means that the Lord sent a fish to swallow Jonah. That's what it means. Um, so we're going to move on. Um, I, I do love Jonah, though. It's so rich and it's so good. And you, you read it, and it's not necessarily because of Jonah, this great person. You, you might think as you read through this account that it's some great narrative of how you know, Jonah makes a mistake and God gives him a second chance and he learns from it and grows as a prophet of God. That that's, that's not what happens in this account. You end up getting to the end of it and Jonah seems to be just as bitter, just as unflattering, just as disobedient in his heart at least uh, as when he first started this journey that we're going to read about. Uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah, it's not mentioned. Um, maybe it was Jonah. Maybe it was somebody else. But regardless, Jonah at some point would have needed to give great detail about what happened in this story. Okay? And it seems that if you keep that in mind, the book of Jonah almost takes the form of a confession in some way. Um, you, you get to the end of it, and it seems that Jonah did not learn 
what the Lord wanted to teach him until long after the events of this book took place. In the book itself, who is the protagonist then? What's, what's going on here? Uh, if not Jonah, who is the main character? Well, the short answer, uh, the short answer is the main character in this story is God. Uh, that's not a Sunday school answer. That is the answer. Uh, God is the main story, not Jonah, main, main character of the story. And you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed, for example, to find in all of chapter 1 uh, a sentence wherein which the subject and object or object of the sentence is not God. It's God. He's the main character of the story. So let's jump into the story. Let's see what we got. God is going to do amazing things here. And, and just to give you kind of a, an overarching and stretch out to where we're getting here, we're going to, we're going to see God's mercy here. We're going to see what sin cripples, how sin cripples man into not seeing God's view on the situation. We're going to see a lot of things unfold here, just so you know where we go. But but asking that question, verse number one here, who was Jonah? Verse one, who was Jonah? So the Lord said to Jonah, son of Amittai, who is Jonah? The only other place that we get any description of who Jonah is is 2 Kings 14. 25. 2 Kings 14.25. We don't have to go there. Um, you just need to know that it's just, Jonah is described in 2 Kings 14.25 as a prophet. A prophet of God. Who is a prophet? A prophet is someone who God chooses to speak on behalf of God. In other words, a prophet is uh, someone particular who God calls out in a particular time in a particular place, to say a particular thing to a particular people. Okay, that's a prophet. And, and where do prophets come up in the story of the Old Testament? We kind of jump right in to the Old Testament here, and, and you're left kind of trying to figure out where am I and what's been going on in the story. So just very quickly, let's just lead up to what, what's been happening so far uh, in the time of Jonah and his, his pro, uh, prophetic ministry. So up until now, God has created the earth. He's created everything in the earth. He also has made man uniquely special out of all of his creation. And he gives man everything he needs to know, everything he needs to know God and to love each other. And in all of this, it's so good, and God gets all the glory in all of creation. But what happened? Man has consequently disobeyed. He's run from God. He's rebelled against God and God's commands. Sin in other words, has entered the world. And that sin has multiplied and multiplied and multiplied to where we see murder and hate and envy and disease has begun to run its course. And because no one hates sin and brokenness more than God, God executes his judgment by punishing sin. But still, God is infinitely more gracious and merciful than we could ever imagine. And even though he could have easily destroyed all of his creation, we read in the Old Testament, mankind included, he chose not to. In fact, he was merciful. And not only was he just merciful, but he began to choose individuals like Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Jacob. And he began to choose these individuals, not because of anything that these guys or their descendants brought to the table. He chose them simply because God had a desire to redeem mankind. He chose not to incur his wrath, but he showed mercy to them. And he chose these people. He looked at these individuals and he would say things like, I want to make you a great people. I want to make you my people. And these people would eventually be called Israel. 
And he would say, Israel, if you follow my commands, if you, if you keep my ways and follow my commands and worship me and me alone, you can prosper and even enter back into relationship with me, the one true creator of the universe. You can do what you were made to do. He was setting apart his people to be pure and without sin, holy, in other words, okay? so that ultimately they would be restored back to him. So you see what's going on so far in creation? God has been up to quite a bit. By the time we get to Jonah, he's created the world, mankind has fell, and we even start to see God's plan for redemption and restoration back to himself. But we also see that Israel is consistently turning away from God. Consistently turning away from God. They had continued to not follow his commands, not worship him, and even worship other gods. Sin had once again crept back in. Do you see the common denominator in the Old Testament story so far? concerning where the majority of the problems come from. It's mankind and our perpetually sinful nature. We choose to run away from God, and Israel was sinning and running from God to the point where you couldn't even tell the difference between them and the other nations of the world. And so God responded. He would choose prophets to warn Israel, and, and he would warn them not to listen and, and, and Israel, consequently, would not listen to their kings. They would not listen to their prophets or their priests. And, God, and when that would happen, God would actually allow other nations to come in and conquer Israel. His hedge of protection against the nations would lift because Israel had chosen to literally run out of God's midst. And as a result, Israel runs right into the mouth of the wolves. Time and time again. And the wolf in this story today is Assyria. The wolf in this story today is Assyria, in which the capital is Nineveh. Jonah was a prophet during this particular time. So Jonah's a prophet during this particular time in this particular place, and God's going to tell him to go and do a particular thing and say a particular thing. So verse 2 here, Jonah's commission. Verse 2 is Jonah's commission. Go immediately, says God. Go immediately to Nineveh, that large capital city, and announced judgment against its people because their wickedness has come to my attention. You know, unlike many of the other prophets in the Old Testament, God was actually telling Jonah not to preach to his own people, Israel, but he was telling them him to go out and go to Assyria. And I won't go into a large amount of detail here, but Assyria was absolutely brutal. They were absolutely brutal. As were other conquering powers of the time, but, but they were brutal in their treatment to the Israelites. Imagine the worst things you've, you've ever heard being done in wars or to people or in holocausts, and they probably had their own creative way to do that same thing to the Israelites. Okay. From, from some of the study I did, it's, it's highly possible the Assyrians not only just did this to, to Jonah's people, but maybe even his own family. He's got the scars and the memories fresh in his mind. Jonah's reaction, verse 3. Jonah's reaction, verse 3. Instead, Jonah immediately headed off to Tarshish to escape from the commission of the Lord. He traveled to Joppa and found a merchant ship heading to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went aboard it to go with them to Tarshish, far away from the Lord. There's no, there's no avoiding it here. God called Jonah to go and preach a message to a people, and Jonah disobeyed God. Not only that, he went the complete opposite direction. So Israel's here, 
You got Nineveh up in kind of the northeast. Go there by, uh, you go there by dry land. Tarshish, five times probably, in the opposite direction, you go there by sea. He ran away from the presence of the Lord, ran away from the commissions of the Lord. You know, and we read in the Old Testament, this is, this is, such, this is such not like a prophet. We read in the Old Testament about the boldness and great character of the other prophets. People, people like Isaiah, you know, we read in Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me, I'll go. And we read about their faithfulness, and, and, and they go and they, they preach a message, and they're, they're faithful even in, in trials and tribulations and hardships. And sometimes those prophets are even persecuted to the point of death, but they're faithful nonetheless. Not so with Jonah. Not so with Jonah. He's not obedient, he's disobedient. So this prophet of God is kind of an anti-prophet. Why did Jonah flee from God's commands? Why did Jonah flee from God's commands? Was he afraid of what the Assyrians might do to them? We read in other places in the Old Testament that a lot of times prophets weren't treated the best, even amongst their own people. Sometimes they were even killed for the message that they preached because of the hardness of their listeners' hearts. Is that that what's happening here? You know, Pastor Sam and I, uh, we've been reading a missionary biography of a man named Raymond Lowell. Some of you may know Raymond Lowell. He lived in the 1200s. Okay? He was one of the first ever missionaries to the Muslim world. And it tells the story of his first attempt in going to Tunisia, to North Africa. Uh, and it's, you know, it's almost 100% Muslim in, in certain areas at that time. And it literally takes him uh, three different occasions to even set sail to go there. Um, because every time he'd get on the ship, he was so struck with fear, the fear of torture or even death, that may come in preaching the gospel, that, he, that he'd literally jump off the ship or he would get so sick to the point where the captain wouldn't even let him sail with them. Literally takes him three times. Finally, he does go, and guess what happens? He gets there, he preaches the gospel, immediately gets into trouble, immediately gets in prison, immediately gets put to death. Somehow he survives and has, has a great ministry, but, but the fear of man had initially crippled Raymond Lowell from preaching God's message. Is that, is that what's happening here? I am convinced that is not what's happening here. I'm convinced that this fear of death is not what is holding back Jonah from going to Nineveh. I'm actually, I'm convinced it's the opposite of the fear of death. I don't want to read ahead and cheat, but we're going to, um, so, because I think this is so important. So go to chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. It's going to be the end of that chapter 3, and it's going to go into chapter 4, verse 2. This, this is how we see Jonah's heart here. Jonah's heart here. So when it says, when God saw there, here, there, that's Nineveh, when God saw Nineveh's actions, they turned from their evil way of living. God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with, and he did not destroy them. Jonah will eventually go there, and they'll actually repent here. Now hear Jonah's heart. Chapter 4, verse 1. This displeased Jonah terribly, and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, This is just what I thought would happen when I was in my own country. This is why I tried to prevent by attempting to escape to Tarshish, because I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and one who relents concerning threat and judgment. Somehow, somehow, in some way, Jonah knows that if he goes to Nineveh and preaches his message, the Ninevites aren't going to kill him. They're actually going to listen to him. And not only are they going to listen to him, but they're going to turn from their evil ways. Maybe not all of the Assyrians, but at least the Ninevites in this story that we read about, 
That's why he doesn't want to go. The prospect of the Assyrians, the people who had brought about so much calamity and destruction to Jonah and his nation, maybe even his family, the prospect of them actually turning from their evil ways and not being destroyed by God, it, it irked Jonah. He had those memories. He knew those names who suffered at the hands of the Assyrians. And, and Jonah, in this moment, by the def, dictionary definition, was a racist by strictest terms. He, he couldn't see past his own nationality, and see what God wanted to do for the Ninevites. He wanted to see Nineveh burn, like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he wanted to see. That was Jonah's heart. And here, we, we quickly learn something about God and man from the book of Jonah. What do we learn about God from chapter 1 of Jonah? If you, want, if you want me to break it down just in one point today, one point that we learn about God, and this is the big point. You, hear it, you Ready? Here it is, kids. God does what he pleases. God does what he pleases. And it pleases him to show mercy. God does what he pleases, and it pleases him to show mercy. Emmaus, this this is the sovereignty of God from the book of Romans that we've been reading about. And and this is the sovereignty of God taken from Romans and put into story form. That's what's going on here. You see, God was choosing Nineveh, the baddest of the bad, to demonstrate that he will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. And he will show compassion on whom he chooses to show compassion. That's the type of God we serve. He picks the baddest of the bad to show his mercy and compassion. And alternately we learn something very quickly about man. So we learn from, that God does what he pleases and it pleases him to show mercy. And we learn that man, man, man's sin cripples us from understanding God's view on the situation. Okay. Sin cripples us from understanding God's view on the situation. Jonah was fundamentally not okay with the truth that God shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. And not okay with God showing compassion on who he wants to show compassion. God was indeed merciful, however, and in the business of saving people. And Jonah was not okay with that. He didn't like that business was a booming. I think we're more like Jonah than we would care to admit. I think we are. You may, you may even be looking at this story somewhat confused, perhaps, asking but didn't Nineveh deserve it? Why, why did God want to show mercy? Look how evil they were. Look at the atrocities they had done to Israel. Look at, look at all these bad things that happened to good people. Look at their blasphemy. Look how much they hated God, these Assyrians, these Ninevites. And, and all I'm going to say about that is if you read this and your heart says that and you judge God's character because of what we read here, there's something about the gospel that you haven't yet understood. You know, most of us, um, most of us remember when Osama bin Laden was killed. Okay? And, and, and as Christians, we, we love justice. We love justice. When justice is served, when, when wrongs are righted, when the, when the man is caught. But ask yourself, really ask yourself, if your favorite preacher... Josh Hedger, you know, 
shared the gospel with Osama bin Laden right before his death, and, and Osama bin Laden truly repented and believed, if he truly, truly, if he did, before he died, if he truly repented and believed before he died, like, like the thief at the cross, like the thief at the cross, would you have had the same excitement about his repentance and belief as you did of his death? Jesus says the angels would have. You have to remember that according to the Bible, you yourself, Hayden Bach, before God, you're no better than Osama bin Laden. No, you're not. No, you're not. And if it weren't for God opening your eyes to see the work of Jesus on the cross as a substitute for your sin, you'd be in the exact same place of torment. God saved you, not because of anything you brought to the table, but because he chose you. This is Romans 9. Often, we take our sin far too lightly in light of God's justice and perfection. And when God chooses to show mercy, we, like Jonah, believe that we're a better judge than he is. So did did Jonah thwart God's plans? We read, no, no, he didn't thwart God's plans. Sorry Sorry to skip ahead and ruin the story for you, but he didn't. We must remember there is nowhere to flee the presence of Yahweh. Jonah was trying to, but he couldn't do it. God is going to put Jonah in Nineveh, but before that, the rest of this chapter is, is, is an extended illustration of God's mercy being displayed and communicated in almost ironic fashion. Before Jonah actually makes it to Nineveh to say, and, and the Ninevites get saved uh, and from God's incurring judgment, God is going to do some more saving on the high seas. So let's go to four and five. God hurls a storm and the sailors react. Verses four and five. God hurls the storm and the the sailors react. But the Lord hurled a, a powerful wind on the sea. Such a violent tempest arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors were so afraid that each cried out to his own God and they flung the ship's cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold below and had lain down and was sound asleep. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like I know a lot about sailing up here. Uh, I have no idea what it's like to be uh, tossed to and fro by the waves of the ocean. Um, I I went fishing two weeks ago, no waves, it was amazing, and caught no fish the size of what's described later on in this chapter. Uh, No matter what my father-in-law tells you, it didn't happen. And, uh, you know, so I... I, I mean, I'm assuming that for the sailors, this was not their first storm. I'm assuming. You know, they'd lived a life on the high sea. Uh, this literally was their job. This literally was their job. And all the text tells us is that despite the sailors' experience, they're absolutely terrified. They feared with a great fear, it says. They feared with a great fear. Yeah. And we're, we're landlocked here in Missouri, so we probably don't know what it means to fear with a great fear and be on the, the ocean um, day in and day out. I'm sure there's many of you in this room, though, who, including me, who have been through tornadoes and other natural events. Some of you in here have even had your homes destroyed or your workplaces. Um, and, and you remember what you felt like when you heard that it was coming straight for your house or straight for your town. You're, you were terrified and pleading for God's mercy. There's nothing that you can do is accept Pray and plead. You have no control over the situation. That's what the sailors are doing here. 
Despite their experience and vocation, they have nothing to do except plead. And so what do they do? They know they're going to die. In the moment of inevitable death, men let go of all things and cling to the only thing that they think can save them. The only thing that they think that can save them. And so they cry out to their gods. But those gods are not answering. They're not answering. Those gods not only lack the power to bring about this kind of storm, they also lack the power to save them, to save the sailors from inevitable death. They're not answering. These gods are not answering, and the sailors are nevertheless crying out. What's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. It literally says he's sleeping in verse 5. Do you see the irony here? That's, that's at play. The only one that knew clearly what, he was, that what was going on in the situation is beneath the ship, asleep. And it, it's one thing to be in a tremendous storm. It's another thing to literally be the cause of that storm. Your disobedience was causing the storm. And it's an entirely other thing to know that you are entirely the cause of the storm and still sleeping in the bottom of the ship. What happens then? Verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10. Jonah is identified here. Jonah is identified. The ship's captain approached him and said, what are you doing asleep? Get up. Cry out to your God. Perhaps your God will take notice of us so that we might not die. The sailors said to one another, come on, let us cast lots to find out whose fault it is that this disaster has overtaken us. So they cast lots, and Jonah was singled out. They said to him, tell us who fault it is that this disaster has overtaken us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And who are you? Do you hear the urgency in their pleas? Jonah knows answer, the answer to all their questions. Jonah knows the answer to all their questions. Look at verse 9 and 10. Jonah responds here. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Hearing this, the men became even more afraid and said to him, what have you done? The men said this because they knew he was trying to escape from the Lord because he had previously told them. And notice once again the irony that's at play here. The captain is basically coming to Jonah and saying, aren't you a man of God, an Israelite? You told us you're a prophet, but Jonah was fleeing from God's presence. Jonah was a believer, but he wasn't acting like a believer. He's acting like a make-believer, okay? When you act like a make-believer, sometimes the unbelievers in the story look more like believers than you do. They're crying out to their gods. Jonah, who, who was a prophet, he knew all about God, knew all the Sunday school answers, yet didn't even flinch when he disobeyed and tried to run from uh, God's presence. He literally slept. And alternately, you have these sailors who found out, God, found out about Yahweh, the covenant name of Yahweh is used there, 30 seconds ago in our account, and are immediately fearful and mindful about Jonah's God who brought about the storm. What have you done, Jonah? They have recognized that Jonah's God is far greater and more powerful than any of the other gods. Let's go from verses 11 here all the way to finish in, finish in chapter 1 here. Verses 11 through 17, uh, and, and we'll uh, continue on from there. The response of the sailors. The response of the sailors. Because the storm was growing worse and worse, they said to him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea 
to make the sea quiet down. Because I know it's my fault you were in this severe storm. Instead, they tried to row back to land, but they were not able to do so because the storm kept growing worse and worse. So they cried out to the Lord, Oh, please, Lord, don't let us die on account of this man. Don't hold us guilty of shedding innocent blood. After all, you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped raging. The men feared the Lord greatly and earnestly vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord sent a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. As clear as the command came from God to Jonah to go to the Ninevites, it is just as crystal clear what Jonah now sees has to be done for God to relent. He has to turn from his running and face the depths of the ocean, but more so, he has to face the God that he's disobeyed. He has to die the death of a disobedient prophet. We know what happens when people in the Old Testament disobey against God's commands or they do things their way instead of God's way. Nadab and Abihu, right? Jonah knows what's going to happen to him. But the sailors are reluctant to throw him over. They know that Jonah is a prophet of the same God who stirred up the storm. So what's going to happen if they throw this prophet overboard? They're still terrified. They don't want to be accountable for his death. So they try to get to shore, and it doesn't work. And it says that the storm actually gets worse. And so Jonah is plunged into the depths to face what he thinks is his inevitable death. You see, God had a plan to plunge Jonah into the depths, and nothing could stop it. Why could nothing stop it? Why? Just so that it would be God, you see, just so that it would be God and only God that would save Jonah from those depths. You see how God works in ways that bring about situations where he alone and no one else gets the glory? Also, look how God saves not just once, Jonah, but twice at the end of the account in chapter 1. In verse 15, it says the storm immediately relents. The sailors are saved. But in 17, Jonah is saved by being swallowed by the fish. Make sure you get that right. The belly of the fish was God's way of saving Jonah and sparing him to send him back into Nineveh. And when God saves, worship happens. You see, when God saves, worship happens. The only proper response to being saved is worship. It happens in both occasions here. The sailors are saved the men fear, it says in verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly and earnestly vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord here is used. Yahweh is used. I believe these men actually repented and believed. The covenant name of Yahweh is used here. The men worshiped God alone when God alone saved them from imminent death. You see? But we also see in chapter 2, as we'll read quickly, uh, we won't read it, but as you read, you know, as you're making coffee this week, uh, that Jonah's own praises... Jonah's own praises to God for his own deliverance. Chapter 2 is one giant praise of how God saved him from the depths of the ocean. He'll say things like, I cried out in my distress, and you answered me, Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. When God delivers anyone, the only proper response is worship. Christian, do you praise God daily in the same way that you did when he first brought you out of the storm? Do you still marvel every morning afresh that he chose you and saved you from yourself? When God delivers anyone, the only proper response is worship. 
So did, did Jonah learn his lesson here? Is he just a model citizen uh, and a model prophet for the rest of chapter 3 and 4? I wish we could say that. Um, and I wish it was that easy. We, we actually learn later on that Jonah is, is quick to praise God when he himself is delivered, but reluctant when God wants to show favor on his enemies like Nineveh. He's going to end up being just as bitter as when he first started his journey. So, so why is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? I think it teaches a whole, us a whole lot about God from, from this place. And I think there's two places of application that we can have. So we, we learn that God does what he pleases, and he chooses, and it pleases him to show mercy. We, start, we learn that man perpetually is crippled by sin, by not, to, to not see God's view on the situation. So how do we apply this to our lives today? I think we have two points of application. One for the non-Christian in the room today, and one for the Christian in the room today. One for the non-Christian, one for the Christian. I'm going to start with the, our first piece of application for the, for the non-Christian in the room today. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you. Okay? Jonah chapter 1 should prompt you to see God's character, to turn from your ways, and to worship the one true and living God. How can we worship the one true and living God? Trust in Jesus, the better Jonah. Trust in Jesus, the better Jonah. You see, about 700 years later, Jesus is going to be on a ship with his disciples in the middle of a great storm. And those disciples are going to be responding just like these sailors did. They're going to be filled with a great fear, it's going to say. And they were fishermen too. And their master, Jesus, who grew up about five miles away from Jonah's hometown, is going to be asleep in the bottom of the boat. Not because... He's running from the presence of the Lord like Jonah was, but because he is the presence of the Lord. And so storms don't make him flinch. Jesus is the Lord, the God of heaven, the maker of sea and dry land. You see, Jesus here is the better Jonah. And with Jesus, the storm is not going to stop because the sailors throw someone overboard and God relents. In the story with the disciples, it's going to stop because Jesus, as God himself, tells it to. He looks to the waters and says, peace, be still. And they are. Jesus, uh, Jonah, sorry, was disobedient to go and preach to a wicked city. city and God spared him by swallowing him from the whale, uh, with the whale to teach Jonah about his mercy and compassion and eventually used Jonah to, to lead Nineveh to be, to, to, to be saved. But Jesus was innocent and completely obedient to his father. You see the, the difference here. And yet chose to go to the cross and die for our sins, for your sins, and describes going to the cross as descending down to the depths, like Jonah, for three days and three nights. Why? To demonstrate God's mercy and compassion on sinners like you and me who are just as wicked as Nineveh. In the same way he spit up Jonah after three days, Jesus rose from the grave in victory. So that now, not just Nineveh, but you and I and every nation and every people and every tribe and every language can know him and walk with him and talk with the Lord our God and worship him, just like these sailors did in this story. Are you in a storm today, non-Christian? Have you tried every which way to save yourself and fail? Do you try to numb your pain and none of it satisfies? Do you put your trust in relationships and those people just end up failing you? Do you trust in your own ways in your life and only end up more anxious and broken and depleted 
lacking joy and purpose, you, you, you might not even realize it. You may not even realize it, but you are in a storm and facing inevitable death like these sailors. It only gets worse from here. You are Nineveh and are an enemy of God. I was too. But, but God has not left you there and he wants to show you mercy. He wants to. I plead with you to go down to the bottom of the boat to get on your knees and plead with Jesus and say, just like the disciples, Master, save us. If you're not a Christian in this room today, I plead with you, take this Jesus. About five minutes, we're, we're about to come and take communion. And this communion is for those who have, have been baptized and are truly in Christ and walking with Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I beg you, just stay in your seat and consider what it means to take Jesus instead. Consider what that means for your life. In a culture where it's so easy, it's so easy to just go through the motions and just say that you're a Christian. I plead with you not to deceive yourself. Take Jesus instead for the first time and really consider what it means for your life. God wants to show his abounding mercy and steadfast love to you. And he's demonstrated it. God proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you confess your need for him and make him the Lord of your life, you will be saved. Say to him, Jesus, not my ways, but your ways, Lord, and you will be delivered. That's my charge to you, non-Christian. To the Christian, my last point of application, to the Christian. For the Christian, Jonah 1 should prompt you to eagerly ask God what it is he would have you do in this life. I don't mean just generally the commands of God for all Christians, like be a faithful member of the church, pursue fellowship. These, those are so, they're so big. They're so important. Make disciples. You know, I'm, I'm speaking more, let me just read it again, just so you might hear what I'm trying to say. For Christians, Jonah 1 should prompt you to eagerly ask God what it is he would have you do in this life. What would he have you do in this life? Um, in 2015, uh, 2015, I got to go to Nineveh. Uh, it wasn't the Assyrian Empire then. It was Iraq. Um, and the city wasn't Nineveh. It was modern-day Mosul, but it's the same exact place where most likely Nineveh was. And uh, the Assyrians weren't living there. ISIS was. Uh, and I got to go there for a short amount of time, less than a month, and, and really, honestly, just watch. Uh, I was basically useless, uh, I, apart from some rudimentary Arabic and some first aid skills. And uh, the Kurds, the Kurdish, uh, the people of northern Iraq, were, were pretty much a volunteer army. Um, they were trying to push back ISIS, and supplies and, and training were thin. Um, ISIS was the opposite. Supplies and training were not thin. Um, they, and they had ransacked the whole region and dug down in Mosul. Um, but the Kurds, people in northern Iraq, had, had gone on the assault. And uh, they were trying to start the Battle of Mosul. Uh, they were about to start the Battle of Mosul. That would last for, month, for a, a few months. And I, I just got to latch on to a group of missionaries way off on the side. And they, they wouldn't even say they were missionaries. They just say they were Christians. And all they were, do, all they were doing is just helping with medical, just medical aid and just doing what they felt God was leading them to do. And their, their leader uh, was, was definitely the bravest and probably perhaps even the most spirit-led man I've ever met in my life. Um, 
I mean, this is a guy who, I mean, he was a man who would, who would sit with captured ISIS members on one side of the tent and with Kurdish generals on the opposite side of the tent and plead with them both that the day of judgment was imminent and that they needed to know Christ and experience the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings, to be like him in his death, to, to plead with them to know Jesus. And he, he, was, he was a guy, he was a man who would, who would literally run to death's door, sniper bullets whizzing, save a little girl hiding underneath her dead mother's body. And, and it wasn't just him. He brought his whole family. Mom and the kids are back from vacation Bible school in the res- rescue villages, doing rebuilding projects, homeschooling their own kids at the same time. And you look at that, and, and you just, and from a distance, you, you just ask, why? Why would they do that? Why? What was leading them to do that? And if you, if you have a Jonah, one, Jonah chapter 1 heart, you start asking it about four or five more times. Why? 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 All the Muslims killing other Muslims in the world. Why should we care about it? Why should Christians here care? Why should we care about Nineveh? You know, in communicating my own call to the Muslim world, I've, I've even had Christians come up to me and tell me, you know, we, we might as well just bomb them and leave it all up to God. And, and looking, looking at his posture, when people would ask him the question, why are you doing this? The com- the, you know what his basic two answers were? Her ba- his basic two answers were, were this. God saves sinners, and Jesus told me to. What's Jesus telling you to do with your life? What's Jesus telling you to do with your life? Are you in a place where you can hear his voice and he can lead you out in a calling for your life? Are you in his word? Are you in fellowship with him, in prayer to him as a family? Are you, are you around godly people who you trust and are, actually, and are actually willing to submit to their wisdom? Are you, are you intentionally putting yourself around members in this body who are not in the same season of life as you even and, and can challenge you and encourage you and maybe even rebuke you? Have you come before him and offered up your job and your house and your aspirations and your comfort and your safe neighborhood and your retirement plans as a blank check so that, so that others might hear and live and glorify the Lord our God? As a follower of Christ, you're not called to comfort or success. You're called to obedience. What's he telling you to do with your life? So as we, as we prepare for communion, and um, the ushers can come down if they'd like, I, I just want to pray for us and read this small verse, and we'll be done um, over all of you this morning. Um, Christian and non-Christian alike. Christian and non-Christian alike. And then we'll close uh, in prayer. So uh, today, Psalm 95.7. Psalm 95, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, you are uh, compassionate and merciful. You choose. You choose to show mercy on whom you choose to show mercy. And if it weren't for you doing something, we'd still be in the state that we were in, Lord. But you chose us. You called us to yourself and you brought us into your family and you reconciled us to yourself. And Lord, we just pray that your voice would be near uh, for us today. I pray over Emmaus and just lead us to what you want us to do, what you might have us do this week, Lord. Lead us to what you might have us do this week to love God, you, Lord, and love our neighbor as ourself. And lead us, Lord, to, to make decisions in light of eternity, in light of your calling, individual calling on our lives. We just thank you for this time uh, once again. Thank you for the place where we get to worship open and freely. We pray for the persecuted church. We pray uh, that your gospel would go and uh, 
and um, in your name would be made famous to the ends of the earth. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time, and we pray in confidence that these things will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take. The following audio is from Emmaus KC. More information about Emmaus KC is available online at www.emmauskc.com.